Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Today's guest is someone that I've wanted to get on this podcast for quite a while. Occasionally, I sit down with guests as part of this podcast series and I walk away feeling really challenged and changed for all the right reasons. And that's certainly what happened in this conversation. This conversation saw me face my own privilege and there were moments where I felt uncomfortable and unsure about what to ask next, not because the conversation was uncomfortable, but because I had this realisation that my experience of this world is so very different from the experience of many of our Indigenous people of this country. And to be honest, it's a discomfort that I welcome and I will continue to welcome because change comes when we feel uncomfortable and then do something about it. In this episode, I sit down with the proud Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman, Teela Reid. Teela is a defence lawyer, a former teacher, a five-time marathoner and an activist. She was awarded the Uni of New South Wales Law Dean's Women of Excellence list and was appointed tip staff to her honour Justice Lucy McCallum in the New South Wales Supreme Court. Miss Reid was invited to sit in on the leadership meetings in Melbourne that began the foundation of the Uluru Statement of the Heart. And if you haven't read this statement yet, then I encourage you to do so because it is inclusive and it is an important statement for our country. Teela shares why our constitution needs to change to acknowledge the Indigenous people of this land and how when we include this significant part of our culture and our history, we're not losing 200 years of history. In fact, we are gaining the inclusion of 60,000 years of Indigenous culture, which for me is certainly something that I want for my children. And Teela calls for all of us to be part of this change. This is an important conversation and one that I encourage you to listen to again and again. So please soak up the honesty, the wisdom and the conviction that oozes out of Teela Reid. Teela, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Such a delight to sit down with you and dive into some of the conversations around the work that you do. Uh, and the stories that you share and the stories that we need to continue to share. I came from a conference this morning and the acknowledgement of country that was done at the start of the conference is probably one of the best I've seen. It was a local lady, Auntie Annie. Auntie Anne, Anne Weldon, I think you you might be referring to. Yeah, Yeah, Auntie Anne. Just the way that she really invited everyone in the room into the legacy, the story, and the history of the place was remarkable. And it got me thinking, why do we struggle to do that whenever we gather? What's what's the barrier that, that stops us from really paying attention to that in those those moments where we acknowledge the place that we come together? I think that question might be better directed actually at a non-Aboriginal person. Um who has those feelings of um, being unsure about why they um, should acknowledge country. I mean, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have been doing this forever. Um, It's part of our protocol. Um, It's unquestioned in our community. And I think that um, it's so natural to us to acknowledge the country, and we are meeting here as well for this podcast on Gadigal country, um, the lands and the waters of the Gadigal people, and and acknowledging that that this country has never been ceded, um, and always was and always will be Aboriginal country, is an important starting point for any conversation in Australia, and I think um, that those feelings of being confronted by uh, by acknowledgements of country but also being when you really um understand the protocol behind it 
it's not a confrontation at all. It's it's a real message to walk with us, join us. Let's have a honest conversation about this country and the work that you're here to do. Can you describe some of that protocol, some of that history and the legacy of, of the power of that? I mean, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have been doing this forever and I think that... Um, it's an assertion of people's sovereignty over their lands and their waters that if you ask any First Nations person in the country, they're not likely to say that they're a proud Aussie. They're likely to tell you the first the first yarn when you meet a black follower is, who's your mob, where are you from? So it's that connection and that ongoing um, meaning to us and what that means to be. Wiradjuri, Wailwan, if you're Gadigal, Bedigal, um, is the starting point also for conversations amongst mob. So, yeah. So can I ask you that question? Where are you from? Yeah, I'm Wiradjuri, Wailwan, um, born and raised in Gilgandra, western New South Wales. Yeah. And what was it like growing up in Gilgandra? I had a great childhood. Like, um I I admit I I did I was full of love, um, but also full of um, really traumatic stories passed down to me through my grandparents, through my aunties, through um, my family about the way in which they were forced to live before, um, and you know, lots of my family were forced to live on missions and to seek permission from non-Aboriginal people about when they could leave and not leave the mission or not be allowed to walk on the same side of the street as a white person. So, you know, the eras, the protection era, the assimilation era is still very raw to me um, because although I have lived a little bit of a different life, it doesn't mean that I don't live with that trauma from those stories. The intergenerational impact on on us as black followers um, is why we seek truth and justice um, in this country. And I think, you know, my town was a small town and as a child you don't know much else what's outside of your, your own family until you start to explore the world and, um, you know, I remember I was really unwell one day and the authorities knocked up at my door and mum told me to go hide. So the fear of children um, being taken is still very real to our people. It's almost at a cellular level, isn't it, that mm. body level, that, that fear in those stories. Were you aware of those stories at a really young age? Yeah, like then, my family were very open to me. So going and walking through the school gate was very foreign because I was learning about this kind of white world that didn't reflect the stories I was hearing at home. And so I've always tried to navigate those worlds um, around how the white system tries to teach us to be, um, particularly from a perspective um, walking through this school gate and being told that uh, Aboriginal people, you know, were nomadic or um, didn't defend the country at war or, you know, um, it just didn't reflect my home life or the truth of what really happened. For example, I... I always felt a sense of uneasiness having to sing the national anthem. I knew the words weren't um, inclusive of my people and then being forced to look at a flag and sing it that didn't um, represent me was almost like a new era of trauma because it was really confusing um, what you learned at school and what you were told at home, those worlds just did not um, match up very well. How did you navigate that, as, you know, through primary school, through teenage years? Because I imagine it would be incredibly, yeah, hard mm. and disconcerting to kind of go, but hang on, there's there's massive parts of those stories not being I told. I don't know. I can't say exactly how I navigated, but I do come from a resilient people um, and... 
I mean, for school for me, I was quite fortunate in the sense I just really loved going because I was very sporty and very active and I knew as soon as I got through the school gate I could go play touch footy or basketball or run around and that was a big motivator for me. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I was also quite lucky in the sense that if I knew that if I did the hard work at school I did all right at school um you know I didn't find all of school that challenging um because once I learned the discipline to learn I knew I could pass things you know um but I think one of the most frustrating things was trying to get these people that were teaching me about my world so Asking questions, um, I felt at school was really confrontational for for teachers who didn't, who were in denial about my stories and my family's stories. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, my mum would send me off to school and go, "If they give you shit today, you have my permission to walk out." You know, because because of the racism and the systemic issues that. Um, her and her siblings faced at school. Um, so, yeah, that's And what just, did that give you a sense of when, when you walked out the door? It just honestly gave me a sense of what I still feel today, which is like every day is a battle in this country. Like we honestly have to mentally prepare to walk out our front doors and face racism, face um, institutions that are filled with white privilege um, you know, I have appeared in court and I got mistaken for the defendant. And so that the way in which we experience um, the trauma and the systemic racism, it exists, but we're experiencing it in different ways. And I think that's the danger with Australia. The danger is, yes, we live in a beautiful country and it's a beautiful country. No one can deny that, but I think that... Um, Non-Aboriginal Australia can underestimate the psychological impact it has on us to um, step up to the plate, to advocate for our people. Um, And it's easy for people to do that, particularly for... Well, to question, for example, oh, you're a lawyer, you're fine, you don't have anything to worry about. But people don't understand that there are real... um, issues in Australia in terms of um, invasion, Um, the fact that this country has never been settled, the fact that no First Nations has ever ceded their country are fundamental issues that go to the legitimacy um, of Australia. And it's 250 years or whatnot since, uh, you know, this is happening and we're resisting in different ways. Yes, there's... um, yeah. What does resistance look like? Yeah, I mean, that's a... Um... Well, resistance means, you know, last week we had a protest down in Town Hall because Aboriginal people are still dying in custody. Resistance for me um, is about trying to do my role as a lawyer really, really well because my job is to represent the interests of my clients but my responsibilities to my community might not always align with my responsibility in my lawyering capacity. So resistance is trying to grapple with how I um, navigate them worlds now um, and not only, uh, I guess, accept the responsibility that comes with uh, the privilege of having a law degree I, I am very, uh, you know, I, I understand that that is a privilege, but at the same time, how am I using that tool to build resistance for my people so that they can see truth and justice in their lifetime? So it's a grappling still. So it's not necessarily a school gate anymore. No. It's, it's just a, it's a whole range of it's other, a whole range of other seen things. Seen and unseen things and even as you're talking I'm probably sitting here um becoming much more aware of even my own privilege and and therefore what questions to ask and how do I navigate that and how do I know that I'm not asking the question through that lens Mm. of that privilege which is which is probably the perfect kind of insight to start to be mindful of and be aware of and I had this similar so I spoke this morning and gave a presentation 
um, around the activism work I do um, with respect to Uluru Statement. But I also spoke a little bit about um, how important matriarchs are and that's, you know, powerful black women in our community are um, to trailblazing this path that I am now on. And it caused a non-Aboriginal person to ask exactly the same question of me today about what am I supposed to do? I'm now reassessing like how I'm asking questions. I'm like, well, you should be feeling those things. You really should. You should be feeling um, heavy. You should be feeling now how you're going to walk away from this conversation and implement um, a better vision for Australia, not only in your work but at your dinner table um, and on social media or whatever community groups you're involved in because we all still have a lot of work to do outside of and, our jobs. And, yeah. and um, I think I said to her that – so I spoke a little bit about matriarchs and how that's very different to what is known as feminism in Australia – and about how we need to, if we're going to address privilege in institutions, um, how we have to deconstruct it from a race, gender and class point of view um, because they're built for your benefit, right? That's how they were established. They weren't built um, to benefit black fellas because we've always been oppressed by these very systems. So you fit this system yeah. and then whether it works from but there But I guess or my not. whole point was the point of my presentation was for you to go back on your own self-reflection and go, what can I do? Mm. And and acknowledge your own privilege, which you've you've done. You know? Yeah, that's and just it's, the first it's a really okay discomfort to sit in, yeah. but, it, but I'm just thinking even people listening that that's okay. Yeah, it's actually stop yeah. and, and sit and listen. So so you went through schooling at Gilgandra and I understand mm. you you then went on to study physical education yeah. as a as a teacher. What was what was that transition or even the decision to to leave Gilgandra? What was that like? Um look, PE teaching and physical education uh, was a natural transition for me because I've always just been a sporty kind of tomboy. And so when, you know, you get to year 12, um, people start to talk about what are you going to do when, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities unless you do um, go and get a degree or whatever. Um, But... I kind of always had a vision that whatever I did, I wanted to give back to my community. And PE teaching was just kind of a natural step for me because I was interested in sport. There's really no other way I can put it. I feel like people have these grander stories to tell, but I really (laughs) don't. And at the last year of my teaching degree, I studied abroad in Canada. So that really shaped my view of, you know, the power of leaving Australia and actually being forced to reflect upon what happens in this country um, and how it's so far behind the rest of the world um, gave me a bigger perspective on how we could address systemic change, which is through law. Um, And the Canadian First Nations context um, is similar but different in Australia, they have treaty, they have constitutional recognition, um, and here we are still having these conversations. And it's in, you know, I think every Australian should feel embarrassed by that. It that shouldn't w- be that hard. It shouldn't be this hard, no. Was there a realisation when you were in Canada or was that kind of an unfolding as you started learning? Yeah, it was actually just really unfolding as I was learning Um over there and because I came back and I was a teacher for like three, four years or something Um, and then I went to the UN and had this experience of being Australia's Indigenous female youth delegate at the UN where I met some amazing um, First Nations advocates. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was was really profound because it was at – um, the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, but my role, uh, well, part of my experience was to be on the World Indigenous Youth Caucus. So you would sit in a room of like 20, 25 First Nations and we all speak different languages and we had an interpreter in every corner 
and you had to get through the agenda, right? And so the caucus elected me as a secretary of that um, caucus. And so you start to learn that um, colonisation has had a really traumatic impact on First Nations around the world. And that impact has stemmed through, you know, the environment, the climate change issues, access to water, um, the ability or not of First Nations to exercise self-determination. And you realise that all of our issues and the impact of what has happened in our own countries can exist in the way I see it is like on a spectrum um, where some people, their concern in their community was water. Or at the time I was there, the issue that was really um, highlighted in Australia was the um, suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act to implement the Northern Territory Intervention, which is an extraordinary act of parliament to do that. Um, and the fact they have power to do that at the stroke of a pen um, was what was at the forefront in the Australian context at that point. But, you know, it just opens your mind up to the fact that um, countries like Australia are still very young. Um, you, you know, we're two, three generations through of colonisation and we need to start to talk about that. We need to reinvigorate these conversations because unless we can have an honest conversation around... Um, the truth of our history, we're not going to be able to move forward as a nation. And fundamentally it starts through colonisation, through the impact of the laws and policies that were oppressing us and still are. So starting with those those mm. um, just tenets of any, of any society, mm. of how they come together, it seems like, yeah, the inroads around that and you... You're right. I guess what comes to mind for me is that in the the youth of the recency of colonisation, there we haven't turned up to the party, haven't no. turned up to the table to have those conversations well, we're not even to really to sit understand. Sit down at the table as equals, right? We are still fundamentally in a position where the way in which power and privilege operates in Australia means that um, we're still begging for to be heard in the democratic process. And, I mean, the the results are very clear. This is one concerning thing about Australia is that people know, for example, the gap is not closing. It's actually, in some respects, getting worse. If you look at the single example of Aboriginal deaths in custody, more deaths sent the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um it's not getting better for First Nations in Australia. It's getting worse. And it, Australia continues to shield itself in this concept of, you know, reconciliation or this gloss that everything's fine without really wanting to grapple with the difficult issues of redistributing power back into black hands. Um, so, yeah. Is that education? Is that Conversations at the top, combination. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, the Uluru Statement from the Art articulated it very well, um, that there is unfinished business and the reforms that were called for in that statement is a constitutionally entrenched, enshrined voice to Parliament so that our voices are guaranteed to be heard. In the past, we've seen Parliament legislate models but abolish them as soon as they get too powerful. And so you were, you were pretty closely involved in the development of the um, Uluru Statement of the Heart? I wasn't that close. I was fortunate to be um, asked to be a working group leader on Section 5126, which is the race power of the Australian Constitution. And that power um, was amended in 1967 to enable the federal parliament to make laws or special laws with respect to First Nations peoples. Um, and the impact of that amendment has meant that 
um, the high court then interpreted it and said that, well, yes, they can make laws for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and they also have the, make, the power to make laws not only to their benefit but to their detriment. And that's a structural issue um, in terms of law that not a lot of Australians understand how draconian that is, that operating in our system is this racist power um, that enables parliament and politicians to to pass legislation that works against its First Nations. I would say there would be plenty that wouldn't be aware of that and at all and whether it's education or ignorance or a combination, mm. privilege, combination of all of the above. Well, I guess if be. it doesn't impact on you personally, right, you're privileged to not um, understand or not even know about it. And that's one of the most concerning things um, advocating in this space of law reform for a referendum to enshrine a First Nations voice is people are like, well, why? And you're like, well, you have to sit down and you really have to educate them on... And it's mostly, actually, white people you have to educate because they benefit and privilege off it every day. They don't necessarily need to understand how it works um, as long as it works for them. Part of that definition of privilege is if I can walk away from it and be okay, then that's privilege. Yeah. Whereas what you're describing is, yeah, any Indigenous people coming to that, they can't walk away and be okay because it directly affects them, yeah, from a legal legal point of view. And the thing is, it's not even a divisive reform. It's so reasonable. It's so reasonable. Um, and that it continues to get um, rejected or diminished by politicians and those in power, which demonstrates the very reason why it's so necessary, right? Absolutely. It um, is incredibly inclusive if anyone hasn't read that Uluru Statement of the Heart. It's, it's, it's such a powerful statement and just the start of where we need to be going. Um, but it, it's, it's a statement for all Australians mm. to, to sit and read. You were saying before that it's very much been a people's and is a people's movement. Can you describe that for me and, and how that's then different to a political movement? Because I would say... I think people don't even understand that difference. So it's important to understand that the Uluru Statement, first and foremost, that was conceived in 2017, is not the first call for voice treaty truth in this country. We've had, you know, the Barunga Statement, the Larrakia Petition, the Bark Petitions. There's been lots and lots of calls. The issue is we continue not to be heard in this process. Um... And the Uluru Statement really changed that context because rather than issuing this statement to politicians, it was issued directly to the Australian people. If anyone is going to um, be able to change a system, it's the Australian people. But they need to know that this is an invitation to walk with us and get the difficult work done. Um, don't, you know, despite what politicians say in terms of rejecting it, at the end of the day, they are accountable to the people. So, um, yeah, the people's movement, look, it's been entirely unfunded. Um, and it, Australians are genuinely, um, taking up the invitation to walk with us. They're having conversations about the Uluru Statement. Each year, the invasion marks Marches get bigger and bigger. Um, I think that people are becoming more aware of these um, this unfinished business. And it's only been two years since the Uluru Statement was issued to the Australian people, and or two and, and in two and a bit years, it's gotten it to a movement um, where it's on the political agenda. And that's not because politicians put it there. It's because the people continue to emphasise how important it is um, in addressing. So there's that demonstration of power and that collective voice or collective support that sits behind it. You were saying before as well the voice treaty truth 
really does operate. In, there's a sequential pattern to that. Can you unpack that sequence? Yeah, so the Uluru Statement talks about um, voice, uh, treaty and truth, but the way it's expressed in the statement is we call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution and then once that's established, it calls for a Makarata Commission to enable treaty and truth-telling in Australia. Um, the concept of entrenching a First Nations voice is so integral to addressing um, the the issue of being heard, really, Um how can you sit down and talk treaty with us when you don't even act in good faith to hear us? And it is the most simple but profound request. I mean, Australians should be asking themselves, well, why? Why is it that um, the government continue to reject a First Nations voice? What are they afraid of? There is absolutely nothing to be afraid of Um it's going to be, it's nation building. Um, and what a beautiful narrative it is. Like I think Australia needs a First Nations voice more than anything these days from what we're seeing coming out of Canberra. That wouldn't it be a beautiful thing that um, our First Nations are heard equally at that that decision-making table? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and there's just... I mean, it's, we've kind of touched on a very little bit. There's just so much story about the land, the the history, the legacy, um, the protocols that I think we would all benefit from mm. uh, if we had an awareness and an understanding of it. We had six years living up in Darwin and so a lot of that uh, was doing some work out on, on different communities and we've taken our team up to uh, this incredible place, Mount Borodale in the middle of Arnhem Land. And as someone who very much grew up in privilege, very much grew mm. up in northern New South Wales, um, there is, I having lived up there, there's so much of that experience that I wish you could almost take <laughs> Canberra, take mm. the East Coast up and just start to be aware, and it is really only a start, but there are stories and and um, traditions that that I know my kids would want to know about, that they would want to share. Well, in. how amazing would it be if your children were able to learn a First Nations language, um, but together with other Aboriginal children? And, I mean, you don't have to go to the NT to experience... Um, the authenticity no. of First Nations, they're right here. The biggest population of blackfellas is in Western Sydney. Um, if you listen and you engage with um, community, there is so much happening that is revitalising um, our culture, our stories and our languages that is happening right in the inner cities. The resistance is building from the inner cities and... Um, it just becomes, I think, really frustrating. For example, the Minister for Indigenous Australians has caused a really divisive um, narrative at the moment about, you know, blackfellas in the inner cities are just influences, like without actually understanding our connections to our communities or our connections to our mobs. Um, we have to understand that the East has also born the brunt of invasion we were the most brutalized and the fact that we're still here is um a testament to our resilience and we're not saying let's go take the streets we're actually saying let's just sit down have a yarn and actually get the real hard work done through um addressing systemic issues through let's look at your documents in law and let's unwind your own privilege because really um, this is about redistributing power, power back into the hands of the First Nations that should have autonomy, self-determination and sovereignty over their issues that impact on them in their communities. 
I get a sense of what you're describing. It's, it's this power and but power with rather than power over, which is yeah. essentially colonisation and that experience now, our current laws, which is power over, uh, but to shift that to, to more mm. of a power with conversation. So you went to Canada, had this realisation, came back, um, worked as a PE teacher for a couple of years. The decision to go into law... Yeah. Where did that, was there a catalyst around that that final, okay, this is now what I'm going to take on? Um, I actually didn't have the greatest experience as a teacher. I experienced lots of um, bullying from other teachers because I was an Aboriginal teacher and I think lots of... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young professionals experience that. Um, this is about, like I was saying earlier, we have to feel, we feel like we've got to strap ourselves up to walk out the door and face the colony because it can be so hard when you're the only one in those positions. I loved the job of teaching. I loved my students and feeling like I was having an impact on their learning and their growth. Um, but Around the same time I made the decision, I was also losing a lot of my own family members in my community um, and it really and, – and I mean, you know, family members before their time, like really young. And it just made me go, what more can I do um, that can elevate the voices of my people and create change? The impact of intergenerational trauma has meant we're dying with heart attacks before our time, has meant that we're getting diabetes um, still at rates that, you know, should not be happening in developed countries. Our health outcomes are the worst. And I just think it made me think about how do we do it? And you've got to understand the system, I think, in order to change it. And that's why I went to law school. I was like, well, you don't get taught any of this at school and how it works. Um, so if I want to change it, then I've got to also use that as a tool to empower my people. And when you started then getting into law school and understanding some of the, the legal implications, particularly from, um, from an Indigenous perspective, what was that experience like? Well... Law school um, is also this melting pot of egos and privilege and people who um, have, you know, their parents have been judges or their mum or dad's a barrister and they come with this sense of entitlement. So um, really coping with that was also kind of a different battle but I mean, I'd still, I have had so many great friends at law school. And I still do. You find comrades that you're like, they understand your struggle. Mm. I went to a really um, great law school that had a focus on social justice issues. So in principle, um, it was where I knew I needed to be. But the daily grind was really overwhelming um, in terms of still struggling again um, with being able to question the system um, and try, trying to learn how you shape and change that but also um, rewiring your brain. Like law is like learning a different language and the focus and discipline it takes to get through um, is difficult but I think it's worth it because we have to keep trying to change um, and, and the law is not static. The law evolves in different ways. Society evolves. Culture evolves. And one of the great things that I do love about the law is that um, it it's living, it's alive and, and we have the power to change it. And that comes from, from sitting down at the tables and asking questions and, yeah. and having different voices that, at the but table. Also that, it also it. comes from feeling isolated in those contexts. It comes from um, feeling like you are the other and not part of the, you know, that system. Um, it comes from feeling 
like why is it that my sense of normal is has to be a question to your privilege do you know what I mean like um law was just a challenge and it still is but I think also that's what attracts my personality to it um while I'm probably uh overworked and um tired all the time it's just something that actually I know this is my calling um and that I do feel like I'm using it for to empower my people and to give back yeah what are the places that your voice is being used and heard at the moment in terms of both the work and the advocacy that you're you're currently doing um, and I know that will shift and change yeah. with different time, but in terms of what you're doing right now and your attention and focus and well, busyness. <laughs> my day job is a criminal defence lawyer, um, but I started to engage with ways in which to change those institutions um, before I started practising. So, for example, I've been working on... Um, how to establish a First Nations court system in New South Wales. And um, that's something that I've worked with a number of judges and um, public defenders and most importantly, um, Aboriginal people and grassroots people to try and get a sense of what this might look like in this jurisdiction. Um, that's something that absorbs a lot of my thinking um, because when you're actually practising the law, um, you really get an understanding that these institutions do not reflect um, the community at all and particularly the First Nations community. So, um, you know, sentencing someone could feel like a really overwhelming um situation for a lot of people but it's because they're not seeing themselves reflected in this system so the idea is to embed uh cultural authority within a court system that ensures that um where people are being dealt with in the court system they're not just being dealt with with this white man's law that they're also getting a sense that um, there is a real cultural authority and elders engaged and community engagement um, around not just the deterrent effect um, or the punishment effect, but the healing aspect. So by the time you see lots of people come into the court system, a lot of things have gone wrong for them. Um, you know, they might have lost their house, they might have lost their children, they um, are sleeping on the streets, therefore they, you know, have to, they're forced into a position of having to um, steal to get food or um, live a life that no one chooses to live. Uh, so the courts are so foreign and I feel like on a daily basis I'm able to give voice to people in that context to fight for their interests um that's on an individual basis but I'm doing like you know other stuff as well with respect to the activism and traveling the country and systemic change I think when I think about what I'm doing I think my practice um is so important to me because it enables me to build credibility in this space um, but at the same time, I am learning legal arguments. I'm building the courage to run um, matters that um, other lawyers might not run for people or defend people or put submissions before a court. Um, for example, you know, putting submissions about what nation um, an Aboriginal defendant might come from um, is just a simple act of recognition of their story and you can see when magistrates or judges are really like oh I've never heard that before and that's just you know it's not radical it's no, just truth no it's not <laughs> you know yeah. let's actually yeah have that cultural overlay as you say mm. it's and it's not even shifting no the the situation and what you're describing is 
it's almost that situation of let's stop and recognise that if you were in that same sort of scenario, having family taken away, being homeless, mm. we necessarily know what we might do mm. or what situations or what corners we might put in as well. Yeah. I love that you kind of, you know, kind of go, yeah, and I'm also travelling the country and doing advocacy <laughs> <laughs> stuff on the side. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier around the the matriarch and the power of strong Indigenous women in your in in that culture and the voice that they bring. What role do they play in Indigenous uh, narrative, voice and um legacy for from that from that cultural perspective i think you know when i think of matriarch each first nations person will be able to tell you some powerful black woman in their family or someone that they've looked up to um in another person's um family or community i think aboriginal women and our matriarchs have always been at the forefront of, of change you know our bodies were property for the taking in the very beginning and this sense of um matriarchal power um is just it's about the cultural authority and and when we're allowed to step up and speak on our issues or when you know they'll, they'll bring you back into line if you've stepped out of line and that's about um respecting not only the work that has to get done, but what come before us. Um, I mean, blackfellas have such an interesting way of um, dealing with our with our authority and how, you know, when should we speak up? When should we not speak up? And it's a community and collective effort. And I think when I think of matriarch, I think of my nan. Um, you know, she's someone in my community who. Um, is looked at by other families. For example, if, you know, mob are going through sorry business or if they just want a yarn, it's like we'll, we'll call Auntie Dawn. We'll go have a yarn with her. And I don't think, you know, there's no real pathway to being a matriarch, but you can definitely get a sense that it has been our women at the forefront of so many movements but at the same time, our movements haven't been about um, disenfranchising our men at all. It's been about um, how do we collectively together um, create space that's culturally safe for us. And I think that's very different to the way in which white feminism gets interpreted. Um, what do you see is the difference? Because I agree. I think there is there is kind of a fundamental well, for example, we're not about breaking through glass ceilings or climbing corporate ladders. We're in many ways about burning it down and building our own. And um, that's okay. You know, I'm not saying the feminist movement hasn't done nothing, but I just don't necessarily see myself reflected in it. Um, and if it is really about women's liberation then is it about freeing our black women from prisons? Because if you're not talking about that stuff, then don't at me feminism. Um, because, you know, sure, it can be about paychecks and um, diversifying boardrooms, but that's the least of so many of our community's worries. Um because we're still trying to survive. We're still trying to assert that we are here, hear us. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I don't dispute feminism, but I just think that there are ways in which it's very different to our kinds of movements, which is, in my view, I think matriarchs are about truth-telling. You know, it's like when you are confronted with the truth, you're forced to put a mirror up in front of yourself and assess your own privilege. I think that's more what our movement is about. It's about um, really shining a light on people in positions of power, whether it's white men, black women. I mean, I carry some privilege. Um, but it's about being always in check with that 
and making sure that is the truth being told. And I think matriarchs are, are, and, and black movements are about this fundamental issue of addressing truth. We're not sugarcoating anything, um, but we're here to tell our story. And there's so much truth that sits in mm. that, that that is just not even heard. Um, yeah. And I love that sense of the the matriarch strength is if you step out of line, you'll be pulled back <laughs> in as well. There's real boundary around and any kind of culture needs that kind of cultural boundary Yeah, uh, that, that helps us get clearer on the truth and what's okay and what's not okay. There's a real strength in that. You mentioned before just you on a personal level of probably feeling overworked and tired all the time and this is such critical work and that there are, you know, it's the armour of having to go out and fight the colony that that I imagine, I can only imagine that, that that's exhausting at times. Where do you refill? What's the stuff that kind of re-energises You're right. Like we don't have the luxury of going home at five o'clock and clocking off, you know. Um, I think the way I refill is I honestly, I do feel like a bit of an introvert. Like I like reading books. I like going to the beach, like hanging out with my niece and nephew. I mean, they keep me in check. Um, Going back home when I can. Um, yeah, I think it's, I unfortunately have a brain that doesn't switch off either. And so I have to consciously check out sometimes. Uh, so yeah, it's They're just, tough, those brains. Yeah. <laughs> just keep going and then you, you, you make progress, but then the, you see the mountain of more yeah. that sits behind it. And for someone like I never grew up on the ocean at all, but it is some a place I find really therapeutic. And, um, you know, I knew I had to speak this morning, so I told my partner, get out of bed and let's go jump in the ocean. And, yeah, you know, we did that and I felt awesome. And so I think that's a real um, – I'm I'm lucky to live on Gadigal and Bedigal country to, um, you know, I walk around Sydney and I think, what would it have been like back before these buildings and um, how resourceful would the, uh, you know, I live in a really nice little pocket of the eastern suburbs. Like you just think and, and you do feel guilty about living there because what would it have been like for the nations before this was all built. And I think it's such a spiritual place and a connection and I think Australia has so much to learn from First Nations stories um, and songlines and understanding of uh, our connections to the land. Because I think if you know, when we move forward um, on things like a referendum and constitutionally entrenching First Nations voices. That's not about you losing 200 years of your history. That's you gaining 60,000 years of those stories and languages. Yeah, I know for mine, I'd, I'd love to gain them. As I said, for my kids, they, for, for those stories, for that legacy that yeah. sits, sits behind it is really powerful. We're, we're kind of looking down the barrel of 2020, what... What excites you about the year ahead or what do you what do you see that is coming in this year ahead? 2020 is the year of reckoning, I reckon. It's you look like you're gearing your yeah. yourself up for it. <laughs> <laughs> look, it this is an example of the way in which power plays out, right? We've got a prime minister who has dedicated, I think it's $63 million to commemorating Cook. And there is hardly any reckoning of what that means in our national narrative. This is not about Cook. This is about the many First Nations that have never ceded their country. And um, 
There's a real power imbalance, I think, when we look into 2020 and it'll be interesting to see the way in which um, the year pans out in terms of there's meant to be this theme of view from the ship to the shore. Um, I actually find the weekend and the week leading up to Invasion Day really heavy and um, for the last two years in a row I've been on a program called the Sunrise Program that airs um, live and I've always felt confused a little bit about the day um, because I don't live in a bubble either. I live, I have friends that are, you know, not Aboriginal and then I also come from a really staunch family with matriarchs. I'm like, how do we grapple with this day? And, um, yeah, like I, I, I definitely do not enjoy seeing the Australian flag being flown around. I'm also a Republican supporter. So, you know, once we deal with this unfinished business of, entrenching First Nations voices, um, I do then envision for our country's future a future that is a republic where we can detach ourselves from that um, toxic narrative and where we can create our own new national anthem and create our new a new flag that, you know, that represents who we truly are. It's the evolution of the identity, isn't it? Yeah. It's going that, that opportunity... But it requires a reckoning to get there, and it yeah. sounds like that's yeah part of that that conversation as well. And how well Australia grapples with that reckoning will be a real um, test of people's morality. For example, the way in which I see a referendum on a voice for a First Nations panning out inevitably is a truth-telling process. It inevitably is going to force Australians to go, is this the right thing to do or not? And answer the question. If it wins or when it wins, it will be a defining moment. But if it loses, it will also be a defining moment in the sense that are people willing everyday Australians willing to step up and fight for this because it means something to them. Um, And I think that when people speak about truth-telling, and as I told you before, the sequence of the reforms is voice-treated truth, lots of people say to us, well, why isn't truth the first reform in the sequence? And the answer is really simple because unless you're willing to deal with the structural dilemma of not hearing us, you're certainly not going to accept the truth. The truth is easy to address in many ways. We can set up a commission. We can write as many books as we want. But are you going to do the hard work and fight for something that will redefine a nation? Um, I've never thought of it like that and I probably would have come from there. Yeah, you start with truth and then... You go from there and see different people's versions or interpretations, but you start with truth, but you're so right. It's, you actually need to be able to hear a voice <laughs> before, before you'll even consider. Otherwise, truth-telling is status quo. We've had many commissions. I mean, one of the most recent ones has been Dondale into the commission into the centre in the NT about abusing children in custody. The recommendations are still gathering dust. So there's no point dealing with that issue unless we're willing to address the structural problems. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. Um, It doesn't mean that, you know, people shouldn't continue to have conversations around the reality of our history. But it means if you're serious about it, then let's go do the work. Let's fight for this. Let's fight for a better nation. Let's actually sit down and respect First Nations and hear them. And that's the most reasonable starting point. Um, So I think we have a long way to go 
in terms of truth telling as well because for so long the onus has been on First Nations and it's tiring and I think there must be an obligation on white Australia to step up and be honest about the impact each story has had on my people. So truth-telling is a dialogue. It will be a dialogue. And um, we shouldn't shy away from that conversation. Truth-telling is actually really hard. Um, It should make you feel uncomfortable. And it should make you feel uncomfortable once you've actually done the work to listen to us. What are the platforms that, you know, talking about kind of white Australia now also saying this is not good enough, this is not okay. What are some of the platforms for people listening that that, that their voice of support could be heard on? Well, everyone's voice matters. Everyone's voice, um, whether it's on an individual basis or a collective basis, particularly around the movement of wanting to um, build momentum and support the Uluru Statement towards a referendum, Everyone listening really needs to understand that they have the power to create this change we're fighting for. And no act too little or big is, is a, you know, everything matters. There can be, I've been to so many events around the country this year where there might just be eight people or there might be 800 people. Every conversation has a powerful impact. Um, everyone has the power in their own individual capacity um, to advocate for voice treaty truth. Um, I think that it does require a lot of people to go on their own self-discovery as well and their own self-education um, because... Not lots of under, uh, not lots of people, for example, understand we've got this issue of a race power operating. Um, I think it has to come to a point where there is a fully resourced campaign. Um, people can go and sign up to onevoiceuluru.org. Um, they can please like print out the statement or read it on your phone, like read it in your book clubs, share it, engage with it. Um, have it in your office or um, ask, you know, your kids are probably actually learning it quicker than what the way in which we're able to disseminate the information. I mean, children these days are just... It's immediate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like all that kind of connection and conversation is immediate and we've contact got the platforms your, to do it. Contact your local MP, write a letter. You know, I think one of the things with Australians is they feel like they don't have that individual capacity to make a difference. And even with my mob, they feel that because they've been so oppressed by it for so long. But I think people need something to believe in. One of the things this country is missing is leadership. It's missing vision. And the most powerful starting point for an amazing vision and nation-building opportunity is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's one page. It tells so much, though, in that one page. And it's a call to action. It's a call to action um, and let's get the job done. And that's there's leadership that sits in that, that we're so deprived of at the moment mm. in this country. I, I feel like this, this is... Um, just such a, a small space to be having what is really critical conversations and I guess I just want to encourage, as you have just done, to keep those conversations going. Um, but by way of wrapping up this conversation, the podcast is called Standout Life. If you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? To me, mm. um, it means being honest with myself and honest to my family Um, and it means not forgetting where I come from or who I am. Like I can't be anyone else but myself and I think one of the things I think that is confrontational for people particularly that I work with within the law 
is they've never had to experience someone like me, which, and I'm not just saying that, like, to kind of toot my own trumpet, but it's true. These institutions have been so privileged and sheltered for so long without question. And suddenly we have this emergence of really amazing, um, staunch, powerful black women even, like my generation, are coming up and they're making sure that their voices are being heard. And I think that it brings us back to these lessons from our matriarchs. It's that be truthful, um, ask questions and stand your ground. Stand out in life means standing my ground as a Wiradjuri and Wawa woman. Thank you so much for your time, Taylor. I really appreciate the conversations and uh, you know the more that this is heard, the more that there will be people that will stand with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I wonder if there's someone in your world, someone who comes to mind that you know who would also love to hear this podcast, someone who might soak up the insights that you've just heard from this episode. If there is someone that comes to mind, I'm wondering if I can ask a favour. The next time that you see that person or the next time that you spend time with family and friends, why don't you ask to borrow their phone just for a moment, search Standout Life on their podcast platform and subscribe them to this podcast. I reckon they'll enjoy it and it'll mean that we can keep having these conversations with even more amazing people.